Hello, Erica. Hello, Stephen. We've um, we've just watched, we've just finished off the Celestial Toy Maker with Episode Four, the final test. They were moving and everything. That was nice. I like the moving pictures. How um, I'm trying to think now. Uh, how many instances are there where the first, all the first episodes? you know, up to leading the last episode are missing. I'm trying to think, you know, or like how I have a whole chunk of missing episodes and and then the last one. How was it sort of trying to imagine, so to speak, what an episode was looking like and then seeing everything as opposed to like Mm. another story where you'd see like episode one or two and the rest of the episodes are missing. How did did that feel? Um, I guess I didn't really think about it that way. Um, yeah, I mean, I had seen the characters at the end of the last one because it was moving, right? Because I feel like we saw Dodo at least in that dress. Oh, you mean the like at the end of uh, the arc? Oh, yeah, and the cliffhanger sort of leading into the... Yes, that's right, yes. So I at least had, you know, sort of the pictures of them in my head. I know mm-hmm. what the characters look like. I didn't know what the side characters look like, but I guess I didn't really care that much. You know, we had, the, we had the pictures. They just weren't moving pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Oh, just curious. I thought that might have... Because um, honestly, watching this now, and after we didn't think too much of episodes two and three, I don't mind this one. And I'm just wondering if it's just because the pictures move and I don't have to sit there. Can, can you imagine this not existing and like the dice game mm-hmm. with just like, you know, Steven and Dodo counting and jumping from place to place, how awful that would be. Yet here it was better that we could see it yeah i don't know it would be interesting mm-hmm. I, i'm not sure i think i might still like it better just because i like the idea of a board game right. and rolling dice and stuff and and i do admit that it would be uh, you know there's not a lot to to listen to mm-hmm. but i mean that part of it i found interesting like i because i like board games and you know the whole aggravation or sorry thing <laughs> where you've got you know if somebody lands on your square or your triangle mm-hmm. you get bumped back to the start um and you know that i was I, the, the big pillar at the end of the room that spun around that had the the numbers on it and the lose a miss a turn thing and go to nine and all that stuff that was fun i i enjoyed that but I still found this episode infuriating because of the stupid ball. I, uh, I think I have to adopt the the brain damage headcanon for Dodo because, <laughs> I mean, either that or maybe just the super drugged out headcanon because mm-hmm. she is infuriatingly stupid. The fact that she, you know, oh no, he's got some blood on his foot, so we need to help him. The floor is electrified. You're not going to get the TARDIS back. You're going to be trapped in this place forever and ever and ever. Um, and he's been horrible to you the whole time. It's just, oh, Dodo is stupid. Yeah. And I mean, we haven't we haven't seen her a lot, so I mean, I guess maybe Dodo is just this stupid. But it really felt like it was just a script convenience. We needed to stretch it out a little bit more and and have, you know, we basically needed Cyril to trick them somehow. So he comes up up with this this thing that should not work, but they make it work simply for the convenience of the script. And, you know, the, the, I actually think that one part of it would have worked better if it would have been not moving and we would have had like the stage directions or something. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what he was doing with the slippery powder stuff. They showed him like, 
doing something to the floor, but I had no idea what it was. If I had no moving pictures, but just a caption saying Cyril pours slipping slippery powder yeah. on triangle number 11, then I would have known what was happening. So at the end, when he's rushing toward the TARDIS, and then all of a sudden there's a flash and some smoke, I asked out loud, what happened? Did he fall? Like I couldn't actually see him slip and fall. And we didn't find out that that was what happened to him until Stephen got over to Triangle 11 to explain it to us. So I just, mm. it wasn't very effective in that way. And yeah. And then, and then we had the two of them standing outside of the TARDIS, you know, being like, well, what if it's not the real TARDIS? You're standing right in front of it. Why don't you just find out? Well, they can't open the door in these in this day and age without the key i i don't think i've ever seen anyone other than the doctor open the door yeah they didn't make that terribly clear or did they say anything like oh we can't get the door open we need the doctor's key no they never said that so they probably could have but i think it was just sort of like accepted canon at that point that Mm -hmm. you needed the doctor's key to get in there Right, but I mean, they were able to open all of the other fake TARDISes, so I didn't know if they had even tried to open this one, or if they were just standing there muttering about whether or not it was real. And then they do get in the TARDIS, and then suddenly there's this whole thing about the the toy maker, which, I mean, I guess it's fair for the Doctor to have known that if he wins, the whole world disappears, mm-hmm. you know, because that's why he doesn't make the final move in the first place. Uh, but the reveal of that and the explanation of it was very sort of weird and clunky and you know it just it it did not flow at all now this uh this um i think i told did we talk about this before in episode one about how brian hales was credited on screen you booed him (laughs) um like he was mike pence at a hamilton performance but it was he who started the story was too busy, so Donald Tosh, outgoing script editor, came on to rewrite it, essentially. But then he was leaving, and he needed to work on a couple other things. And so it was Jerry Davis, who was coming in as script editor, who had to basically tie everything up. Mm. Um, and so this, this this happens not only in Doctor Who, but in all forms of televised and filmed entertainment. When you get, like, three layers of script, something's going to slip through the cracks and... That's what I think happened here. Yeah, that's what it felt like. It just, it felt paper thin. And it, yeah. It, I, I still like the idea of a world where, you know, a game games are being played and you have to use your wits and your skills and stuff to survive. But I just don't feel like the execution was, was really, was really there. Sorry, mom. Oh, yeah, because your mom kind of liked the uh, audio version of this, didn't she? Mm-hmm. She did. And she sent a very nice email like explaining that one of the things which it is you know hard for us to understand is what it was like to watch television at the time. Because, well, my mom was not watching Doctor Who at the time. Mm-hmm. She was watching television at this time. So, you know, had some understanding of the way TV worked at that time. And, and she was saying how when she was a kid, watching anything on television was magical. Like just the fact that it was it was there moving on the screen in your living room mm-hmm. that that was super duper exciting at the time, and we are so far past that. Like it's it, it, there's no way to really sort of capture that feeling. So I think audiences at the at the time were probably much more into it than anybody today would be. 
I can bet. And this is such a departure from everything else that's been on Doctor Who up to this point. Mm -hmm. This sort of surrealist kind of weird fantasy Mm -hmm. land where clowns try to kill you and you know all these all these things that basically these kids are like children watching this are probably familiar with and they're all like evil and stuff you know i imagine at the time it might have been very frightening and effective but no not so much yeah i do i do i do still like the i like the surreal stuff i just Mm -hmm. wish it was more tight yeah yeah just it it just it just didn't feel finished really that's a, that's all it is mm-hmm. needed another couple of couple of coats of paint sort of everybody felt like they were i don't know maybe i need some headcanon that because it is the the surreal world that the toy maker has created it actually even affects the people who are brought into it and they suddenly become like caricatures of themselves a little <laughs> bit like they become sort of like the cartoon sort of version right. of themselves where they talk in very simple sentences we are going to have to use cunning you know that sort of thing hey if the toy maker can make the doctor disappear and or be silent at uh, you know at, at will mm-hmm. i don't see why you couldn't sort of create stereotypical you know dumb human companions to go along with these stereotypical, you know, clowns and playing cards and Billy, whatever his name was there, Cyril, uh, playing the game. I like this headcanon. I can accept that. Yep. He just had an, he has an effect on, on all of the denizens, whether they have, you know, no matter what way they arrived there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I noticed here for the first time, I'm not sure this has ever been done in Doctor Who up to this point, but before the Doctor sort of throws his voice, I guess, or imitates, I never got that because you can quite clearly see he's not moving his mouth. Um, but before he says that, he goes, Stephen says, you know, quite comfortably, you know, set for pre-dematerialization. I've never seen the Doctor... You know, don't bother correcting me if 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 he has done this before. But I know that you know Ian of Barba could would not. You cannot touch that. And maybe like mm-hmm. they they teach Barbara sort of like to operate the door or the scanner or something in the rescue after Susan's gone. But to like actually teach Stephen mm-hmm. how to dematerialize the TARDIS, mm-hmm. I was impressed by that. That shows a great amount of faith in Stephen by the Doctor. It also explains why in the massacre, Stephen was, you know, he, he was gung-ho to get the key off of the doctor's dead mm-hmm. body and head for the TARDIS. Because remember, I was wondering if he actually knew how to pilot it. And now we know. That's right. Yes. Yes, he does. And, you know, he is, he's from the future. And at this point, the show has not really established just how much like how far advanced the doctor is in comparison to any any part of earth mm-hmm. uh so i get the impression from you know from what we have seen between the doctor and steven and sarah kingdom that at this time the idea seemed to be that that steven and sarah kingdom were not not at the doctor's level but not terribly far behind so whereas you know the doctor as we know him now is so many light years ahead of where their technology is i think that that was that that's actually a bit of a retcon compared to this so it makes sense given at this time that the doctor would would teach steven 
Um, and then he probably would have taught Sarah Kingdom as well if she would have stuck around or Brett Vian, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, and, and, and you say, yes, he never taught Barbara and Ian those things because, you know, their society was so much more um, primitive. And also at that time, the doctor had not really been, you know, it, I keep coming back to the fact that it was Ian and Barbara who sort of taught the doctor to loosen up mm-hmm. and and trust people. So, you know, in in a way, it really is, you can draw a direct line between um, Ian and Barbara being on the TARDIS and the doctor being the kind of person who would even teach somebody else that. So uh, Stephen has them to thank for it. Yeah, they humanized him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. in in a good way. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the end, it's almost like this, it's setting up for like a sequel that's coming like very soon down the line. Oh, we'll meet again sometime and blah, blah, blah. And yet they never did. Or did they? (gasps) Um, Maybe, maybe someday. They were supposed to meet the Celestial Toymaker again. In the first story of season 23, in a story called The Nightmare Fair, is written by future producer Graham Williams and Michael Guff, who had already appeared in Doctor Who again in 1982 in the Arkham Infinity, uh, was set to reprise his role. But, uh, and it was going to be, is going to take place in Blackpool, which is like Las Vegas for the UK, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of, that kind of place. And so at the very end of uh, Revelation, the Dallas is supposed to lead into that. And Perry at the time goes to the doctor, where, oh, where, where, where should you take me now? I know, I'll take you to Blackpool. And, the, and it ends. And it goes, ah, it's crazy going to, Ve-. you know, it's kind of like the doctor saying, oh, well, let's go to Vegas. Boom. Episode ends. But of course they put the show on hiatus at that point, canceled the whole season that was to come and left the I'll take you to <laughs> with it's frozen on the bee and so they never went to Blackpool so they did eventually novelize it and I think Big Finish uh, subsequently made a, uh, a, a audio version of it as well with David Bailey I think in the role of the Celestial Toymaker ah, I, I was going to ask if there was a Big Finish in there because I, I figured this this would you know as we were talking about the the audio version of this working working better I can I can see a an audio Wow. adventure mm-hmm. being pretty effective. Yep. So there you go. That's the story of the Celestial Toymaker. Mm-hmm. Now let's never speak about it again. <laughs> okay, I'm fine with that. Uh, yeah. And yeah, and then, okay, so I'm, I'm going to comment on this, even though it's we'll probably <clears throat> see it again in the reprise next time. Okay. But so the first moment when the doctor takes the candy, at first I was like, oh my God, are those jelly babies? Is this the first time we see jelly babies? But I seem to remember that it's actually the second doctor that has jelly babies for the first time. So, uh, but it does look very similar to, you know, that kind of a bag of sweets. So then the doctor takes it. And I thought when he put it in his mouth and started screaming, I thought that maybe they were joke candies from cereal and they were like really, really sour. And he was uh-huh. just like, or they tasted like something really gross, like those Harry Potter jelly beans or something like that. Um, they have some of them that taste like, like earwax and vomit and stuff. Yeah. I, cause they're every flavor bean. So some of them taste like fruit and some of them taste like disgustingness, like dirty socks or something. I'm never watching those movies or reading those books. I didn't think you were going to in the first place. No. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so I thought that was the deal, but that's not it, is it? Because he actually hurt his tooth chewing chewing on it, which that he did not sell that very well. Like, you know, I, it just looked like it tasted bad. Well, the way he's sort of like, ah, he kind of like overacted to make it look like, oh my God, the doctor has been poisoned or something mm-hmm. like that. It's kind of what they went for. So he has to go and... Mm-hmm. 
but it's probably not going to be as serious as all that. And you won't see the reprise actually at the beginning of the next oh. episode. So um, that's uh, that's fine that you discussed it now. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's been a year and a half or so since I've seen the gunfighters, so I don't really remember how it starts. Oh boy, he just listener mm-hmm. Stephen just got the smuggest little Rings grin on his face. Rings on your fingers and bells on your toes. That's how it starts. That microphone's probably not picking up your singing at all. I didn't really mean to do it louder. Gunfighters is next. Goodbye. Goodbye.